one of the things that was amazing to be able to watch being around all of these, what I consider now would be defined as the forefathers of fitness or fitness coaching. I think I got to see success take as many different forms and people gain an audience through many different ways. And I, I was able to look at, okay, how do they do it? Can like, is that, would that be sustainable for me? Would that make me happy? Would that be fulfilling for me? I had to find ways that were workable for me. Everybody, my interview with Ben Escrow was extremely fun because it was a time for me to catch up with an old friend. I think you're going to get that loud and clear as you listen to our chat. But one of the things that always attracted me to Ben in the first place was, was his brilliant analytical science mind. As somebody who really does enjoy the biochemistry and the organic chemistry side of, of this sport, uh, somebody who very much got involved, as many of us do, in sports supplement science, uh, there always seems to be a voice or two in the industry that is, is bringing forward all of the new findings and highlighting research and so forth in the sports supplement side. And rightly so, these kinds of agents can be helpful and supportive, but they're not the main thing, hence the term supplement. Uh, but just to see that Ben is still involved in that passion, something that brought him into this industry more than a decade ago was fantastic to hear. Uh, so, some really cool parallels between our careers as we've moved along. We, we have not seen each other uh, in person for almost a decade. Uh, he and I spoke together at different science conferences and camps in the past. Um, and as he says in one point, he's accused of flying under the radar, not a big extrovert, uh, much similar to, to me. And so this was a chance for both of us to, to just share some of our history together and see what we've been up to in the past. And I, I really think you're going to see some cool things in terms of where our nutrition coaching industry started, at least in that tiny epic of, of time. And uh, some of those tentacles, I, I keep likening the history of our um, academic profession, our, our occupation to convergent and divergent evolution, where uh, there's an intermixing and, you know, just, just parts of the family tree interweave. And this is still in that main pod where, um, you know, I coached Lane and then Lane created quite a following and, and uh, everybody seemed to orbit him for quite a while. And this was a very early beginning in those days. So really think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I want you to check out what Ben is doing outside of this. So check out those show notes for his websites. And I hope you enjoy our conversation, Ben Escrow. So Ben Escrow, just for a little bit of framing, you and I met for the first time probably around a decade ago, and then we crossed paths for a couple of years. And that intersection was originally, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, through Lane Norton. So uh, I was invited to speak at a couple of his VIP camps down in Florida, then you and I were both on a trip together with him overseas. So I think we go back close to a decade, probably almost right around that time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a bit, but I'd say uh, long overdue. Uh, but that was, that was the beginning. I mean, I, I had known of you uh, prior, um, back from the Natural Bodybuilding and Fitness magazine days and your articles. And obviously, um, before there was Lane, there was you. So I, I, I knew who you were, but that was the first way I think I got connected to uh, a lot of people I had known and, and looked up to in fitness, uh, but actually got to meet and interact with uh, for the first time. So, um, so definitely, I, I owe a lot of credit to Lane for that because he got me out of my extremely introverted shell. Well, and and let's talk about that for a second because what I want, really want to do, uh, I, I had an immediate affinity and in, in kinship for you because you're a registered dietitian, you take nutrition very seriously. And even though we met about 10 years ago, my beginnings formally were probably closer to 25, 28 years ago. And I felt kind of alone in the world in that here was this bodybuilding world and I was trying to sort things out and, and make better paths forward into evidence-based practices and all the things that you see in, in the bodybuilding field now that, that spilled over into general population work that I was doing. But there wasn't a lot of people doing that. And 
technically at the time, I understood that I was not an RD nor an MD. So even with a clinical doctor to nutrition, I was, I was pretty limited in my scope and, and what I could do. And when I decided to start creating avenues for people to get involved, I, I knew I had to abide by the laws and looking at all 50 states because they were all legislated differently. You know, it was clear that if I employ an RD and or an MD and, and they're looking over our shoulders, so to speak, and our processes and what we do, then we could create a licensing or franchising model. And, and that's what I was doing. And it seemed like that was the only path forward. And when I met you, I would say because of Lane, nutrition coaching really in mass just kind of flourished when everybody started ignoring those laws and still to this day. So I, I'm interested, let, let's, let's take this in two steps. First, what made you decide to become a registered di dietitian to begin with? Well, it actually wasn't, I'd say the primary path of choice. Uh, so what, what happened was I, I knew I always wanted to go, go to school for nutrition pretty early on because I think that was, I apologize for having to rewind it a little bit, but there is a little background sort of required to answer that question. Um, so once I got it like really into fitness and bodybuilding and wanting to change body comp, I think nutrition was the thing that people, you know, you'd always get those, uh, those principles or sayings that people would say like, uh, you know, nutrition's 80% of it and, and training's 20 and, and all that stuff. And uh, so I think that was very early ingrained into me. And then when I first started trying to change my body comp, I really realized the power of nutrition because it went first from a place of like, essentially starvation diet, uh, then to getting really skinny and realizing, oh, okay, like uh, I need to eat something. So I need to build some kind of structure from there. And, and I think just the amount of control over physiology with nutrition was just very fascinating from from the beginning for me. And I think that really has forayed into multiple fields now beyond just nutrition from the start. But uh, I knew I wanted to go to, to school, to undergrad for nutrition because of that. Um, I was just addicted as soon as I realized like, wow, I can control my body composition. And it's pretty unbelievable what you can do to your, your, your body physically just by changing your eat, eating patterns. Um, so I, I did that. I did the the formal nutrition route. And I think a lot of it was, I'd say for the most part, disappointing for me curriculum wise, because, you know, you go to school for nutritional science and it wasn't as much science as I think uh, I was expecting. And the courses that I loved were like, you know, the biochems, the nutritional, um, you know, I think it was nutrition three or three, where you talk about, you know, macronutrients and the roles of the macronutrients and basically how they impact physiology and clinical nutrition. And that's the stuff that really, really uh, gave me more of what I was looking for. And a lot of the other classes, um, let's just say weren't that, that are part of the requirement of, you know, doing a, an accredited program in nutrition. So I graduated and uh, I was looking for jobs. And the first job I got out of, out of school was with WIC. And for anybody who's not familiar, WIC stands for Women, Infants, Children. It's basically a government provided food service program that um, from my experience is underutilized and I think underappreciated um, because uh, you, you can qualify either based on medical need or income. And oftentimes people who are within this service are not actually utilizing the program to its full benefit because uh, you do get food checks, but you're getting free nutrition counseling. So people would get an hour with me, um, 30 minutes to an hour with me and really the end point for, I'd say 95% of people was just give me the checks. I don't really care what you have to say, which was crazy because at that time I was, I had clients um, who I was working with for, for nutrition or, you know, fitness stuff. And they were paying me uh, like, you know, like significant amounts of money yet people who were getting it for free, were not appreciating it, appreciating it or utilizing it at all. So anyway, I worked that job for, for two years. Um, I'll keep it brief and just say that is not what I wanted my career path to be. Um, and I knew to have any type of fallback or really forward momentum uh, in getting out of that, uh, that career path as a, as a nutritionist or dietitian, I needed an RD. It's sort of like the gateway thing to get into any type of 
better paying or more respected, I think, positions in nutrition. So uh, originally I didn't, I didn't actually intend on getting the RD. And then I did it after I went out and worked in the field for a little bit and realized like my hands were very tied if I didn't have it. So, so that initial movement just into a bachelor's degree, was that because of your interest in physique sport? Like I'm, I'm interested in this and I want to be the best version of that, that I can be. And there's got to be some way to make an occupation out of this, but it's, it's primarily for that passion. Yeah, I think, I mean, passion really drives pretty much all of, all of my, my life decisions of what I'm going to pursue. And, and it was, it was the passion of, uh, you know, kind of talking the talk, but being able to walk the walk. And I think one of the fascinating things, and this is the irony on the other side, the flip side of, you know, you talked about all the legal and legislation things about nutrition, how technically you're not really supposed to be writing nutrition plans and diet plans without the RD. But the irony is a lot of people I went to school with, I don't think they had ever been on a formalized, you know, I'm not going to say, well, diet is the easy way to say it, but that's sort of taboo to use it that way. But they haven't really done body composition, you know, um, nutrition plans themselves before. Uh, so I found that really crazy is how many people in this field have actually had the experience of, you know, changing their body comp significantly, uh, in some type of controlled manner. Yet the end point of this degree is supposed to be for that. You're supposed to be the nutrition expert. So I found that really, really ironic. And I thought not just because I was a male in a female dominated field, but the fact that I already had that, um, practical experience of going through it was definitely sort of an advantage. Well, and, and that leads me to the point where I think you and I conceptually intersect well, uh, because I, again, fashioned my business around those legal limitations. Mm-hmm. And, and you, I, I think it's very appropriate and, and cliche in a very fun way that you started working in something like WIC. And isn't that what most people think of when, when you hear the term registered dietitian, you're going to work in a school or a hospital or a yeah. government program yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, totally fine. But what I like to tell young people today, looking at coaching or fitness as a career, a, how much entrepreneurial domination there is, like there aren't that many jobs out there. You, you, for the most part, create your own, mm-hmm. but if you do have the passion and you do have the drive, A, there are building blocks that can lead you into better pastures, but that's where also there's the uh, the layering of credibility and real world knowledge. You're actually learning something academically, and yet then you get that competitive advantage. And so you at that point said, okay, I need an RD. I need that accreditation to make sure that I can legally do this, and it's going to do good things for my career. Once you went down that road, did you immediately jump into the fitness world full force? How, how did that path present itself? Yeah, at that time, I mean, it's crazy. The most popular social media platform was bodybuilding.com forums. It wasn't, you know, there was no Facebook. Um, there was no Instagram. There was no TikTok. So I think a lot of my education was a mix of both in the classroom and really digging at that point in time uh, within the community. Um, So I'd say I was involved. I don't think I formally started taking clients, like paying clients until it was around the WIC WIC period of time, I think. Um, But I I, I had known because of my experience, like Lane was my first coach for for a bodybuilding show. I knew that I, I saw the potency and the ability to really change someone's life through that. So I think, I think it was always something I knew that I wanted to somewhat somehow be involved in, in doing. Um, and to be honest, like it never was really an intentional career choice. I think it just sort of happened. Like I remember I prepped and then at the local gym, like there were other bodybuilders prepping and stuff. And they'd ask, they start, start asking nutrition questions. And then it just became this thing through conversation. And like, I take one person, I'd help them. And I started having success. And then obviously the networks start growing and you start, you know, just taking one or two clients who are somewhat significant uh, in terms of like being known. And then it just, it's amazing. It just kind of balloons from there. Um, but I think to get back sort of to the point, uh, I think it, it comes down to a personal preference thing where um, 
I wanted to feel more comfortable and confident in knowing that I'm giving people something that I could back up beyond just like these are these are nutritional uh, beliefs that have been passed down over time. Um, I, I wanted something a little more solid than that. And I think I did get a lot of that. That's why I followed who I followed. That's how I became, you know, associated with Lane. That's how I got connected with you. I think the evidence-based uh, aspect of fitness was always the most appealing part to me. And I think that's what made me, I think you can have with, with many of these things, very positive and negative paths you can go down. Um, like for example, if you got lost in one subsection of bodybuilding.com forums, that was like the MISC or, you know, the IFBB section, maybe that would guide your life path. But I think the one that always spoke to me was the evidence-based one, the people who are, who were backing up what they were saying. Um, not just, you know, like if you want 18 inch arms, you need to do curls because that's just the way it is, bro. You know what I mean? Um, or, you know, uh, I like that's how my body works. That's how, you know, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. just typical gym, gym beliefs. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of what, what drove, I think my decisions and, and what made me say, I'm probably going to stay in this space because I think there will always be a need for that. Um, because think of it, you know, you mentioned marketing, you mentioned entrepreneurial aspects. I think there's also a lot of aspects of fitness where people are seen as easy prey. Um, because there's still so much belief in it. And like Lane has built a career on belief wars. Um, so I think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's just valid. It's, it's proof that um, no matter how many educated people come into the space, it, it has not totally changed the industry. Well, that's why I, I wanted to do this series. I, I feel like we're now almost a full generation past that etiology point. And, you know, this sphere of people, from me, Lane, Paul Ravella, you, Ryan Doris. I mean, think of all of these people that, that, that crowd was almost the Venice beach of yeah. what you're calling evidence-based, totally. um, you know, movement. And, and I guess I didn't view it as that at the time I was just doing my thing. I wouldn't have even called it real science-based. I was obviously, that was my platform. That was my background, but it was just to find the, the better, ways of doing things, the processes for people, for their, their real lives, for their health, for their performance. And of course, you know, like minds congeal together, we end up with this group. And I think at the time you were doing some bodybuilding and powerlifting, is that right? Personally. Um, yeah. And then because of that need or that attraction for an evidence-based community, uh, you for a while, you moved to Florida, didn't you? I did. Yep. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't even remember what year that was, but it was at some point close after probably 2016. Mm -hmm. And so, so that I, I'm putting these pieces together myself as we go. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I apologize for not, you know, having an exact timeline, but you and Ryan Doris, DeNovo Nutrition, you as a powerlifting coach, you as a nutrition coach, you, you had a lot of things going, you know, and I would call it almost spokes in a wheel that yeah. were carrying you down the road. Uh, quite literally, I remember you and Ryan doing this cross-country social media campaign <laughs> yeah, with DeNovo yeah. Nutrition. So, so kind of go through that two or three-year history of, of what, what tangible decisions did you make for your career and how far did that carry you at that time? Yeah, so like I said, uh, I sort of fell into coaching. Um, I think really the original intent was the, the supplement side of things. And and it, it's, it's for all the same reasons that, that I, you know, kind of talked about for, for quite a bit there, um, which is just this real intrigue by, by physiology. And I think the aspect of supplements, you know, again, like there's a Jekyll and Hyde aspect to the supplement industry. And I think the, the interesting part for me was that, you know, when, when you have things like creatines and the, the ingredients that broke through. Um, and actually did work and do something. I think that always, you know, lit up a fascination in, in my mind that, okay, there are, there, there are legitimate ingredients. You just need to work to find them because it's usually somebody digging and excavating through whatever, you know, avenues you can find to, to find this breakthrough ingredient. And then it changed and really defines the industry for, you know, a decade or, or a certain period of time. So I think I was always intrigued by that. Um, and 
really coaching is, is what allowed a bootstrap business to survive um, because we didn't take any money from, from the company really for the first, well, really ever during that, that Florida period. Like it was all just um, bootstrapping and, and trying to build it. So uh, it was definitely a lot. It was a lot of juggling, uh, a lot of hats to wear. Um, but yeah, I, well, I don't want to get too far off the point. <laughs> um, so I'll let you kind of re-guide it. Uh, I, I, think, I think the general answer to your question though is uh, where all of that stuff sort of intermingled was when we moved to Florida and that move was to actually try to build out and grow De Novo Nutrition, which at that time was sort of a hybrid of a coaching service and a supplement company with the intent to ultimately be just a supplement company. Um, but because of those, uh, that sort of melting pot we had with Lane, um, obviously, you know, there was this interest in, in coaching and everything else beyond just the supplements. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because I think that is a really unique aspect to your career. And I've had a lot of things in my life that I'm not doing now, or they were stepping stones to different things. Yeah. Plenty of, of things I have redirected because of changes in the industry and the market. Um, but as a, as a lesson, uh, you know, my first supplement company, because I also created one in 1999, uh, one of my friends was a biochemist who was doing some work in the supplement industry. And this was at a time when there was zero shelf space for these kinds of products in, in yeah. real retailers. And you saw metrics and EAS as the first two. And this, this friend of mine said, man, you could do this. Your, your background, your credibility, like you should have a company. And unfortunately, he talked me into it because I was too young, had no idea what I was getting into, knew nothing about the industry nor business at that level. So within one year, we're in all 50 states, we're a seven-figure company, we're in multiple countries, and we ended up as the third company in the country with retail shelf space nationally. We had a 14-state distributor who ordered a semi of product, and we're like, holy fuck, what do we do now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're scrambling for capital, and we're, you know, it, it is the classic story of you grow too big too fast, and we just couldn't sustain that. Um, then I think a few years after that, you really rode the great wave of, I, I'm probably using this term incorrectly, but kind of a lifestyle brand where it's like, man, people loved you. They loved Ryan. They, they loved the personas behind the company. And so you created this cult type following and it was pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. your credibility, your science-based reasoning and, and writings about your products and so forth really carried the load. So uh, just for people, because I, I know we have a lot of coaches who are trying to build companies as well. And I, I think this is very germane to that. What were the things that you did right? What were the things that you wish you would have known that you do now? So, I mean, as much as I'd love to take credit for, I think that aspect of it, uh, like the social momentum and uh, orchestrating of the how did you just define it? Like lifestyle brand type stuff. Like I, I think that is one, as soon as you meet Ryan, you realize like that he emanates that. So that was, that was very largely Ryan. I, I think that's why we were a very potent one, two punch. Um, but I, I'm sorry, you need to remind me of, of the last question because I was going to go way down the tangent <laughs> on, on the answer to that. No, that's, that's where I want you to go. I, I really want people to see just what it takes to build a successful company, including the inner works. You said you yeah. wore many hats. You're not taking money. You're just grinding it out. Like the successful people have that background in common, but yeah. then you did some things extremely well that, that, that caught that wave. Um, but ultimately De Novo nutrition is no more. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so maybe give us that whole landscape of, of how things happened. Yeah. So um, that, that's right. You asked me, uh, I think, lessons learned like positive and then and then you know uh things that i would avoid uh it's funny i think a big part is and you you hear like anybody who's watched shark tank like i i watch that uh every once in a while when it's on tv and i've heard mark cuban and other uh well-established businessmen say you kind of got to trust your gut and i think a lot of that stuff that built momentum in the beginning was that like it was just sort of 
uh, gut feelings and, and intuition and instinct. Like I remember, and you know, what's crazy. This is an important part is that I think goes less appreciated today is having those in-person events where you could meet, you can interact. Um, Cause I remember the dinners being a, a huge aspect of those VIP camps with Lane. And that's really where Ryan and I started talking and started brainstorming and stuff just really just blossomed off of that, off of just a few conversations. Um, so I think I'd be lying if I said there was this master plan. Uh, we did really kind of figure it out as, as we went. And interestingly, as it tried to get more formalized, uh, it, it didn't work as well as when it was just very uh, organic. Um, and yeah, I think, I think the, it's tough to give you any type of, uh, I think, formal answer to that, because I, I think from my experience, it just sort of happened by being in a flow state. Um, like I knew what I wanted. I, I was working towards what I wanted. And you could argue very stubbornly, like there was no option for it not to work. But at the same time, I think just by being associated in these groups and connecting with people with the same passion, it just sort of happened. Um, I, I, I wish I could say like I had step one, this step two, that like it really just was following my passions and then just being connected and being out there enough in the networks that sort of, I think, made it made it really kind of blossom. Um, I think the difficult aspect of business is that our problem was sort of the opposite of, of what it sounds like yours was, is we didn't grow too big too fast. It, it was very difficult to reach those milestones and growth. Like we did have breakthrough periods, but I think it always on the outside looked bigger than it really was. Um, and when you're bootstrapping and everybody is really in the trenches working for this belief that by year three, by year four, it's gonna pay off and it's, and it's not happening yet uh, at the timeline you, you want it to, I think at some point that emotional, uh, that emotional investment needs to convert into a financial return. And it just, it just wasn't happening or growing fast enough. And that's just very difficult to, I think, keep together. And, and that was always sort of a panic of, of my, from my perspective uh, as the founder of it and why I was always hesitant in the beginning to even involve other people is knowing that like people's lives are dependent upon this. You know, people are taking a big chunk of their productive, you know, professional lives in their 20s when they're trying to really establish themselves and believing and buying into your thing and it's got to convert. And I think there was always this rush of it needing to convert. And I think the most difficult aspect of the supplement arm of DeNovo or the supplement arm of anything is the margins just are not as large as like a clothing company or a coaching company. You know, coaching is, is really, um, the margins are enormous. Like the overhead costs are, are very low relative to supplements where like consumables, you know, at least 50% of it is getting eaten up in the production, um, and the shipping and, and all of that stuff. So I think that was the, one of the major, major uphill battles. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm trying to find again some type of real easy pinpoint lesson in that. Um, when did you know it was time to just let it go, and how did that happen? And and I, I'm asking that because I want to parallel that with my story yeah. in the exact same way because then <laughs> that that led to some great things. I mean that that was one of the most painful points of my professional life. Um, yeah. I, I, I cannot remember crying this hard. And I didn't expect this as, as I was having a meeting with my staff and employees and people who invested time and money in the company. And I had to tell them it's over. I've, I, I still don't know if I've ever cried that hard in my life, just because that was how much we had all invested in this. And yet one of my business mentors said to me, Joe, everybody will do better and have greater opportunities because of this. Trust me. And he was exactly correct. Everything that we thought had just burned to the ground and, and we did not succeed were the exact stepping stones to even better things. I, I would like to see it that way. I, I would hope that everybody else involved has seen it that way. Um, I think that 
so you asked about you know how how it wound down. I mean, the the irony to the answer to that question is, in many ways it hasn't. Like, so I do have another company. I'm still stubbornly trying to do the same thing. Um, but it did. I mean, it did last beyond where I think. I think everybody, when you mention the name DeNovo Nutrition, anybody who's aware of it could have multiple answers to whatever their version of knowing DeNovo Nutrition was. I think a very small crowd could have been, you know, the first two years when I was just running myself out of my parents' house. And then I think most people, the largest chunk of the bell curve would know it during the Florida years, because that's really when it, you know, uh, grew the most, especially in terms of social um, recognition. And then there was a period where I moved back um, and it was just me running the company. Uh, and then I partnered with somebody else in the UK trying to expand it um, more internationally and, and you know, into the Europe European market. So it lasted for about three years, four years beyond that. And then it finally kind of the, the death blow was COVID. Um, and it's largely just because uh, everything, finances, obviously people, penny pinching. Um, so like, I, I know every company took a hit during that period of time. Uh, but obviously, the smaller ones, I think it was more difficult. Um, and that's ultimately what kind of just made me look at it and say, okay, you know, at this point, this is the, the best exit out in terms of our ability to liquidate, pay off all of the, the debt we had and sort of uh, start over again from scratch. Um, so it, it wasn't this clean, you know, streamlined process. And I think within baked into that answer of that, that three year period of, of leaving Florida and then the, that next chapter of DeNovo, it's exactly what you described. I mean, I think when I left Florida, I left a version of myself behind that uh, felt like it died. Um, and that was like the powerlifting competitor athlete side. Um, that was the person that was integral in those communities. Um, and the difficult part is like, when you're talking about a person who's also a business owner, you look at the business, but you forget there's a person living a life too. And I think, you know, one of the difficulties for me was like going through uh, losing an enormous outlet for me, which was powerlifting and my ability to do it because I, I was you know, going through some pretty serious back um, and, and disc injuries during that time to the point where I couldn't even really lift. And uh, it is a, a major factor in what drove me to leave and come back back home to Florida. And obviously, once that happened, you know, when you have a, a serious injury, where you're in chronic pain, it affects everything. It affects, it affects you emotionally, it affects your motivation, it, it affects every part of you. And to lose a business during that time too, it was a pure, like, just like you said, like, I mean, I don't think I've ever cried that much for that extended of a period in my life as far back as I can remember. And it did, it felt like, it didn't just feel like a company was dying. It felt like a part of me was dying because for me, DeNovo came from my brain. So like, I personally identified with DeNovo. So for the company to dissolve, it felt like the death of, of, of myself in, in many ways too. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's really an all over the place answer to your question, but hopefully it gives people a lot of the scope of, of, uh, of being an entrepreneur. Well, I, I, I haven't told this story in quite a while, uh, but you made it come back with full force in that the day that we decided it had to be over. Um, and, and sometimes I wish we hadn't, I, I wish we could have, we, we would have made the decision to fight Absolutely. a little longer, but I had a partner of mine, who is my main financial backer. And besides some other investors, you know, we did have some bank capital that he was primarily able to get for us. So we're, we're talking in the tune of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And at the point where this contract fell through and this person had kind of pulled us along, he was doing some things illegal. The, the way our company wound down was in a three-year lawsuit where we had to sue a broker this guy ended up losing his law license, his SEC license, his job, and he spent three years in prison. And I'd like to say, so it was all his fault, but I'm the guy who trusted him. You know, I'm yeah, the guy yeah. who, because I was so invested in my dream that I thought it, this guy's offering to fill this role for us. So I'm going to invite him in. 
sight unseen. Um, so I just recall that day that my partner and I sat in the president of a bank's office and we just, they, I should say they, they decided the run is over, like we're done. Mm-hmm. And that night, just, I, I, I had to take my kids to karate class. So I had, you know, two of my kids out there and their little geese, five years old, Which seven I, years old. I can't imagine having kids and adding that. Yeah. I can't imagine going through, yeah, what I did with kids as well. So, man, kudos. Well, I, that entire hour that they were in class, I just laid in the corner of this gym on the concrete floor and stared at a fan 40 feet above my head, wondering everything. How am I going to feed my kids next week? How am I going to do this? What do you do with a million dollars of debt? Uh, You know, all of these things. We, We had this two to three year meteoric rise that just came to a crashing halt. And as as I want to emphasize and and maybe move on to some happier times in our lives, (laughs) that, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that probably teach you more lessons. I I call it my million dollar MBA. And I sure wish I would have had somebody beside me to say, no, Joe, don't do that. Do this. You're not smart enough. You don't have the expertise. Bringing somebody in, you mentioned Shark Tank, to literally say, here's how you run a business. I thought because I was good at what I was good at, that would just carry the day. Mm-hmm. It did not. And I think there's a great lesson in that. But like my friend had told me, you know, as painful as this is, it's going to lead you to better places. And I don't think you would know who I am if not for that company. I wouldn't have the business I have if not for that company. So painful as hell, expensive but you don't hit a home run without a few strikeouts. And, yep. and I think that's a, a really big part of, of a story that you and I share. Yeah. I mean, despite all of what we just said, I would never have not tried. If I could relive my life again, I would a hundred percent still go, go for it. I mean, I, I still am. So um, I think despite all of the hardships and the pain and, and like you said, you know, failures and, and things that feel like personal failures, um, it's still worth it because they're, they're defining moments. It, it's, it's just like competing in that sense. It's like, do you not compete because you're afraid of losing or do you find out, get answers and, and move forward, you know, better because of it. So what are you doing now? Um, ironically, I also still have a core supplement line. It's very much more internal. One lesson I learned is that, you can't play both sides of the field in terms of being kind of direct access to customers with a higher profit margin and try and get shelf space yeah. and, and just, yeah. you know, prostitute yeah. your margins. So I decided, okay, I, I, that part is over. I have a distribution network. I have my client base. I have my company. So I will keep the products that I love and am attached to because of their nutritional value. So just our protein powder at this point. And just, just utilize that for what I wanted it for the beginning, which is just having the highest quality, best product you could have. And it's not going to be the main force of my company, but it's just something that still adds some value because I have that expertise in my background. And so it does, as you said, live on just in a different form. So I'm very interested to hear what you're doing with yours. Yeah. So uh, I appreciate you through your experience actually giving me the the answer to now the question you asked prior which is like one of the lessons or or things that i've learned and and i think it's that as well for me which is that does it have to be world famous does it have to be on the shelves of a walmart or you know a top seller on amazon and i think by looking at things and realizing like you know you have to define what success is for you. And I think at that young age, that's what I thought it was. And I think really now when I look at it, like the fact that I can still make an income and live a life formulating products um, that don't need to be top sellers because there is the, there are these niche markets. Um, I think that is really what I would define now as success. I, I am afraid all the time that it's not gonna, the next year it's not gonna be there. Um, but I, I think that is what I've wanted because I do truly, truly love as much as I love the science of nutrition and body comp and powerlifting. I love formulating. I love the chase of finding a, a new thing. So um, there's sort of multiple answers wrapped up in that. So that's the, the one thing I learned is, uh, is I think it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, this blockbuster success to actually be 
success. I think, you know, you need, you know, success is you, you really need to define what that is for yourself. Um, otherwise you're chasing what everybody else's definition of. And I think I found that that might not actually be my definition of it. That's what I thought my definition of it was. It was like the manufactured idea of success. But um, as to what I'm doing now, I, I, I have another supplement company called Elemental Formulations. That really is, even as the name implies, like it's the love for chemistry and formulation is, is sort of baked into that. And it's just the purest form of uh, what I think did work for, for de novo in terms of formulas and products. So we did take our most popular, which was Utopia. That's a product now under the uh, Elemental line. And it's really just a lot less marketing. Um, it's sort of the products for the purists. Um, and, you know, it does make the, the, the journey harder. Uh, but I, I find it for me, it, it's that much more rewarding when someone finds it. Um, just like someone asking me to be on the podcast is like, uh, I, I've heard numerous people say, uh, you fly under the radar about me. And, but it makes me feel good when someone does find me. Um, because, I think one of the things that is meaningful to me is that I can, and, and you mentioned this as well, thinking that a, a company can be successful just by being really good at something. I, I think I'm sort of an idealist and I also am, am someone who believes in like utilitarianism. Uh, and it just feels good that someone found me not because somebody else said I'm amazing, um, I'd like to think it's because they found me from some type of product or my work or something. Um, Cause I think that is one of the things like, I will always be grateful to Lane by giving me a platform and giving, you know, uh, me notoriety. Um, but at the same time, a lot of that success that was associated with him felt like I didn't necessarily earn it. It felt like it was just people God Lane. So they're godding me by association and, and that felt fabricated. And, and I just, I, I did, wasn't proud of that success, if that makes sense. Um, so anyway, the short answer now that I gave you the long one is uh, I, I have Elemental um, uh, and then I still do some coaching on the side with, with a different company. I'm no longer doing it as an independent coach because it's too, I realized too many hats to wear. So I work for a company called The Strength Guys, um, and, and I basically do programming and some nutrition just with them because then I don't need to be responsible for both companies. I can just, I can be responsible for what I need to be responsible with, with Elemental, and then I could just coach, not have to wear all the hats of owning a business with uh, The Strength Guys. Excellent. I, I, I teach a lot of coaches. I mentor, certify, licensed coaches. And one of the core principles that I discuss is, is minimum viable audience. So too many people think they are going to be the next, you know, international coach of fame and a, that's probably not going to happen. I mean, if you're just looking statistically, but also I don't think that's how you get there is by shooting for that. First, you start out by being so good at what you do that you're sought after. Um, in our local market, uh, I tried to kind of restart under the radar. We, we moved our national office to San Diego for a few years and then split it between there and Nashville and then COVID hit. And I was just trying to decide what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, let's just kind of reopen here in Evansville after a 15 year or so hiatus. And so I just kind of non-discreetly opened up this little space on main street and, you know, you know, people just start flocking because they see the name. And it does feel a little bit like fight club. Like I'm doing everything to not be found and people are still <laughs> finding the red door. Yeah. And, and there is a, you know, that that's almost the best way to create that mystique in a brand. And that's a real concept, minimum viable audience. You don't want yeah. everybody. You want the people who are just so die hard in love with you and, and your service that they would never leave you. Yeah. Such a, such a lesson in that. And, and I feel like both of you and I probably kind of found that, you know, circuitously. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think my route to finding it is really a sustainability thing. I think one of the things that was amazing to be able to watch being around all of these, um, what I consider now would be defined as the forefathers of, of, uh, you know, of, of fitness or fitness coaching. I think I got to see success take as many different forms and people gain an audience through many different ways. And I, I was able to 
look at, okay, how do they do it? Can like, is that, would that be sustainable for me? Would that make me happy? Would that be fulfilling for me? And I think a lot of times, like what I found was the biggest people, I wouldn't be able to sustain that. I don't have that type of energy. I don't have that type of tank. Honestly, I don't like that much attention. Um, so uh, I think I had to find ways that were workable for me. And, and that's still a process for me. I think I'm still finding that, but I think life uh, is also teaching me. I, I'm, I'm trying to be better at not ignoring, um, you know, when I get super burnt out, like there's a lesson packaged in that and I need to be able to be uh, uh, humble enough to, I think, take it and take it in. Um, but I think many of those prior versions as well, most people will look at it and say like, why did you not embrace the spotlight when you had it? Why didn't you go full bore? Why didn't you go all in? And I think people think it was like, this strategic thing on my part, but it was really that like, I just, it, it wasn't enjoyable for me. It was, it was killing me on the inside. So I just needed to find ways that like were livable for me. And funny enough that you said, you know, you moved back to hometown, like I'm back hometown. And, and one of the things that <clears throat> brought me back home was, you know, uh, not just the injury, but like my brother uh, adopting and, and both of my parents being diagnosed with with different forms of cancer and things that were just like, okay, like you're out here, you're trying to build a business. These are the things that you want. And it seems like you should want, but there's also this life stuff happening that you can't ignore uh, back home that it may not be there forever if you choose this one or the other. And, and it was emotionally difficult, but at the same time, uh, I don't regret any, any of the things uh, that I did. And, and at the same, and I also, again, like, like you said, I learned a lot of lessons within that. And uh, I think found my answers to things, which is hard. It's not easy, but those painful processes are important to go through. You're reading my biography in all of the <laughs> introversion speak. And the fact that, you know, when I, created a lot of the processes and just, you know, almost accidentally created nutrition coaching as a thing. Uh, there was a lot asked of me in terms of speaking engagements and being out front. And, and there's, there's a certain degree of that that I'm okay with, but I'm not an aggressive extrovert where I'm going to create that myself. I don't, I don't have that high of ego needs and yeah. I much prefer to be alone and behind the scenes. I'm a very good wingman. Like I can push other people out front and, and help yeah. them be, you know, very yeah. successful, but I just want to be the guy in the back spinning the dials and flipping the switches. Yeah, I, and, and I so, yeah, as, as the industry asked of me, some of those same things like Joe, take charge, you know, get out there, do more. There's so much of the pie that you're not getting. And I'm like, I just finally had to realize I don't want it. That's not what revs me up. That's not what I want my career to be like. I still want to work with individuals and whether it's mentoring a coach or working with a literal client in my own facility, like I did 25 years ago, nothing brings me more joy than that. So why would I want to seek those things that I don't really like just because they're out there? Yeah, I, I well, you touched on a, a really interesting aspect too, for me in coming back to coaching, because I did take a while, a break for a while during that COVID time where I had to pick one and, and I chose to try to keep the supplement thing alive. Uh, and then now more recently I've come back and I think I realized in coming back that one of the things that was feeling empty about the supplement side and just purely doing that was I wasn't getting that, that individualized uh, sense of making a difference, um, or, or an impact in somebody's life. Like, yeah, it's cool when someone says, you know, like I was using medication and I'm not now because your supplement, you know, satisfies all these things. Like, that's great. But so much of it is like 90 some percent of it is the complaints, the customer service things, uh, that you're dealing with and seeing just a lot of negative and man, when most of what you're getting is negative, even if you have a bills, a business that's self-sustaining, if you're just seeing negative feedback, that's part of your headspace. Um, so to come back and just hear people say like, you know, have breakthroughs with either believing in their ability to do things that they didn't think of before or hitting strength milestones or physique milestones. Like I needed that too. Um, to know that I'm making a difference, a positive impact on a personal level. Cause uh, you just don't get as much of it when you're doing something at scale. So I think I, you know, balance is a, is a big theme of, of, of this discussion. And anytime I've tried to go too far in on one thing, uh, I, I started drowning. And, and ironically, 
what it's true of as well is like, you know, during that, that time, one of the things I didn't mention, well, the, you know, I was losing the athletic Ben, uh, the, the powerlifting bodybuilding competition competitor Ben and the company, I decided to go back for another degree. And I went into this pure science thing. And I think it forced me to get completely isolated in a way that I felt like I'm purely pursuing the thing I want, which is, you know, a deeper understanding of, of, of biochemistry and, and pharmacology. But man, like that took me for a ride as well when like it was all classwork and assignments and textbooks that were just pure objective science. Like I, I needed a rebalancing. And I think, you know, the three, four years of that have taken a, sort of another three, four years of not being in that to sort of even back out. And I think I'm still kind of trying to find, you know, an, an even ground of tapping back into social life as well. Cause man, it's hard for one brain to, to be doing all of those things and do them efficiently. Like I found that even it's funny cause we used to talk about this and joke about it in Florida is like, I found that like, I almost felt like part of my brain was atrophying uh, in Florida because like I would be so hard headed and heart set on trying to find the next breakthrough ingredient or the next utopia to sustain us product wise, like I would just be locked in reading papers or reading, you know, uh, journals and stuff. And I, I just wasn't talking to anybody. And it's, it's amazing. Like, you know, you're, we are very adaptive. Muscle is very adaptive to load and stimulus, but we forget that our brain, you know, neuroplasticity is a thing too. And your brain adapts if you remove something completely. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all of it is just such an interesting journey in sort of self-reflection. And that's what led me to the second half of my career. So I had my first half, which were all the physical and objective sciences. I actually want to talk about your injury because I started out in orthopedic physical therapy. But now uh, a master's degree in social science, another in social science writing, another in social psychology. So, you know, as soon as I turned 40 and now into my 50s, like that has consumed my my academic and personal brain there's direct carryover into what I do as a business owner and a coach and an entrepreneur. But at the same time, instead of just seeing all of the hard sciences, I've awakened to the humanities side and like, wow, uh, speak about speaking about atrophy. Like this part of my brain just didn't even exist until it was awakened <laughs> yeah, through that. Right. Um, but, but yeah, tell me, I, I knew you had gotten injured and I, I knew it was a back injury. Uh, what was that injury surgeries rehab? Where are you now? Um, so I, the original injuries were, were herniations that I used to just loosely define as like a back strain or, or something. And I had no idea that I was bulging, uh, bulging discs. And, uh, of course, stubbornness is a the theme of this conversation as well. And, uh, I think, I think there are numerous aspects that would be sort of distracting to get down into the rabbit holes of, of why I think the abbreviate, abbreviated answer is um, I had multiple level herniations, mostly in my lumbar. Um, they were happening throughout my, my powerlifting, um, but mostly during where I was kind of crossing over from bodybuilding competing and doing contest prep, but also powerlifting and training for powerlifting meets. Um, and I would have these spasms where I would train through them. Um, because I was in prep and I didn't want to lose that caloric expenditure. Uh, and I remember at one point, like I, I was double belting. I had a Tommy Kono belt and then I put an Inzer belt, like a lever belt on top of it to get through my training sessions. Not the smartest thing, not something I'd ever recommend to somebody else, but, um, you know, I justified it to myself. Uh, and I just remember I had trained that day doing that. Uh, I recorded a podcast. I didn't really have pain. And then I uh, went back upstairs to listen to it. I went to get out of a chair and I just collapsed. And um, this was really the major event for me. Uh, in, I didn't even realize it at the time. Um, I just remember laying down because uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't even go like get up myself to go to sleep. My parents had to pick me up. They had to drop a mattress. We had to call an ambulance the next day because I still couldn't stand up. And I just remember laying down thinking like, my life's going to be different after this. Now the irony is like a week later after that I had bounced back really quick. I was able to 
um, get back to training. This was actually before I even met you at the VIP camps. Um, mm. So you never would have known. But I think the thing about injuries, especially uh, when you're talking about like ligaments uh, or tendons or, or bone is, you know, you're talking about a lifespan. So stuff in your 20s that you don't think could be uh, accruing this, this uh, mechanical or structural change, you, you kind of realize later. And I think what I didn't realize is as I kept doing more powerlifting, more uh, competition, uh, I got started getting this nagging, you know, back thing that was felt like my SI joint, but running down my, like my, my, my right leg and my, and my butt. And I went on this journey to try to figure out what it was, kept trying to train through it until the point where it started becoming incapacitating. It wasn't going away. I had to stop training. Uh, I got imaging. I did so many things. I, I, I got stem cells in, in my bottom three discs. I did epidural injections. I did PT. I flew and saw Stu McGill in Canada, who's like one of the leading spine experts. Um, I never actually had surgery because everywhere I went, everybody recommended against that. Like, don't let anybody cut into your back, no fusions, none of that. So I never did that. Um, through this long road of trying to figure out answers, I had found that that initial injury that I told you about um, was actually missed. Like it was misread. The imaging was misread. And, and when Stu McGill was going over it with me, he said, oh, wow, like you have an annular tear here in L5S1, you fracture between four and five. So I had a lot going on. I had the multi-level herniation, the annular tear, and then, and then the fracture that I think it just took accrued over time, you know, more repeated injuries to really rear its ugly head. Um, so basically what happened was uh, COVID, ironically, where I talked about all the negative things business-wise, it was a very positive thing because gyms shut down. I wasn't able to train the way that I was prior. It made me rest a lot more. Um, and my back started feeling a lot better. I stopped doing the power lifts. I stopped doing compressive stuff. And it, uh, it got more manageable to the point where like now I can lift, but I think lifting to me is a whole different thing than it used to be. Um, I don't train nearly like, like I was. I just accepted that I'm not going to be a competitive powerlifter anymore. It's just not the sustainable path. And crazy enough, and this could really segue, but uh, I found golf and golf is like my new, my new passion because swinging a club, believe it or not, for whatever reason, that that rotation motion must decompress my spine just in a way that um, on that side, I don't know if it's just where the bulge or the tear is that it actually decompresses it that way, but it actually kind of gave me relief and it made me feel athletic again. So like during COVID, I dove full bore into golf and now like I'm doing pro-ams, I'm, I'm competing in golf now. Um, so I still think to golf. Yeah. No one would have ever, <laughs> everybody who I say that to is like, I never would have seen you doing that, but, uh, I, I find joy in that. I just think it's funny because neither would I. Um, but, uh, yeah, I still, I still lift though. I think it's now a more manageable way, way of doing lifting. Uh, so yeah, really a total, a total 180 turn, but the, the back stuff is much better. And I, as I mentioned before, I realized what kind of cloud I had over me while I was in chronic pain that is not there anymore. But just like we talked about the brain adapting to, you know, social things and other stuff, I think your brain adapts to chronic pain. And that's something that does sort of live with you that you need to uh, retrain as well that like, okay, I'm not in pain anymore. And like, it's weird. Like I was never an anxious, super uh, high, strong person, but chronic pain definitely created a more anxious version version of me that now I also need to, uh, I have had to work on, I think is, is a better, uh, way of saying it. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of life lessons through both business and powerlifting and, and all of this stuff. So I'm glad I asked. I, I definitely want to discuss some of this with you off camera because as an orthopedic physical therapist who incidentally is going to be scheduled for surgery for my neck, uh, oh boy. in the next few weeks, um, with a space occupying lesion, like a, a disc herniation or tear and, you know, perhaps a, a ligamentous, um, tear in the spine. Uh, uh you even said maybe a, a fracture that you didn't even know you had. 
Yep. Those are kind of things that will revisit you as, as degeneration happens. So my original sure. herniation was from car accidents, motorcycle accidents. I actually not only have the herniated disc at C5-6, but there are three uh, longitudinal ligament tears, the ligament of flavum, I believe. Um, so my neurosurgeon said like, you, you really did a number like either, either you, like you could have been a quadriplegic because you tore that ligament either three spaces in the same injury or just three different injuries. Uh, nonetheless, you know, from that in my childhood, you know, obviously the disc is just going to gradually degenerate without that nucleus. And so, you know, 25, 30 years later, here I am having that. So, um, let's, let's close out with all of these incredible life lessons that we both, uh, (laughs) paralleled and, and talk about the future. So you're, you're still doing some coaching, um, both performance, you know, biomechanical type work and, and probably holistically, including nutrition and so forth. Mm-hmm. You've got this supplement company and, and I definitely want to hear more about that as we close, but where you were part of that second wave of nutrition coaching as an, as an occupation or a career force, uh, back in those Florida days, how do you view it now? When you look at the landscape as a registered, registered dietitian, looking at what's happening and some of those laws, of course, being ignored and some just softened. I mean, even my state of Indiana, they've just basically kind of given up and said, okay, as long as you're not doing medical nutrition therapy, whatever, you know, just don't hurt anybody. Um, How how do you perceive where we're going and where would you like to see it go? I I wish I could say it was a hundred percent positive. I mean, I, I do, I think like everybody, probably my generation and, and older, uh, I do worry about what, the social media um, addictions have done um, and and will be doing to the younger generations. I think they've changed the landscape of everything, not just um, our internal landscape, but also I think, you know, so much more people getting into entrepreneurship. So everybody's selling something. Um, So I think it's taken those things prior, like you said, about, you know, nutrition services and coaching and stuff like that. And it's actually leveled it up now where uh, before you might see in, you know, just your local gym, the personal trainers or whatever doing nutrition advice. And now it's really anybody with a platform with with a phone, a cell phone and an Instagram account. So um, I think the difficulty is even if they pass those laws, how the heck are they going to enforce all of that? I don't think that's the solution. Um, I just hope that logic doesn't disappear. Uh, and that's one of my other concerns about the social media stuff is we've seen with political campaigns and everything is like uh, the belief wars and the you know fake news and all that stuff. Um, it's moving things in a direction that I don't know is valuing logic um, or, or evidence as much. I hope I like to think that things go in this sort of cyclical wave-like fashion. And at some point something will come along and bring us more towards that. But the fact that we're here and talking about it and there's still a platform shows that there's certainly enough of an audience that values this stuff that um, we need, we need to stay strong and and keep fighting for it. Um, So, yeah, I, I think, I think as long as that continues, what is the benefit for us though is, is, there will be an importance for uh, people like us that, that value that and are providing that, that, that type of information. So I think it actually keeps me engaged in, in, in the fight, so to speak, um, just in my own sustainable way. Whereas I think we have the, the lanes of the world who are very at the forefront with the megaphone, you know, confronting it very vocally. Um, and then for me, I, I, I try to put that into uh, uh products or concepts or, or ideas or, or, you know, my own flavor of, of doing it. But I think in many ways, we're all kind of trying to fight that, that same fight. Well, and, and I do believe you're right on the positive side in that there is a bit of a natural selection catabolic curve in that yeah. people who do take the time to get the, the education and the credibility and, and they build something that is sustainable, they, they will survive and others will have to move on. Um, but, but one more time before we go, t- t- tell me where people can find your supplement line. So it's elemental.fit. Um, that will redirect you. The, the other way to get there is eformulations.co. The company is elemental formulations. Um, 
you can find me on Instagram. I'm not super duper active. Uh, and then I have another side side passion project called Subsci, which is a page where I'm trying to do that that same thing that I just talked about uh, in terms of building some type of curriculum to better understand supplements and um, and kind of break them down because I still think there's a massive gap there. Whereas you know a lot of the things we talked about today or the people we talked about have made a lot of progress and inroads to understanding of nutrition um, or physique body comp changes, I still think there's a lot of progress to be made in terms of the, uh, the balance between the marketing of supplements and actually understanding them and being able to, you know, constructively criticize or, or critique them. So um, yeah, I, I, that's a passion project, but man, again, we talk about only having so much time. So I hope I, hope I could build it out a little better in uh as time moves forward but there's always so many pots that need to be filled at the same time well i love that you're still doing it i mean this is what attracted me to your work in the first place and and to know that this is still what's driving you forward along with golf uh it's <laughs> uh it's just great to see and and we'll put all that information in the show notes of course but ben escrow man long time coming so great to catch up and i hope to see you again soon likewise thank you for having me 